0: Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books, and imprint, All Due Respect. Sharp Knives and Loud Guns is the brand new collection of Peyton Noir case files from cult crime writer Tom Lines, featuring novelettes, slug bait, smut loop, and sweating blood. In these violent misadventures, private investigator Joe Ray is forced to confront his dark past if he still wants to have a future. Things are about to get very bloody very quickly. Check out Sharp Knives and Loud Guns from Tom Lines. Tom's website link is in the show notes. It's called Things to Do in Devon When You're Dead. It's a fun place that I like to play now. And with that, check out Sharp Knives and Loud Guns. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am TG Wolf and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own and others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes. So if you're a regular listener, you may be going, hey, Tina and Jack, I thought I listened to episode seven last week. Why is this episode six? That's because Tina screwed up. So now I'm proud to introduce season six or episode six in season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of first cases for detectives. Some will be characters you know from books, screen and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories that influenced those that followed. Episode six is about greed, cleverness, and patience. This is Hewitt and the Lentencroft Robberies, an abridged version of the Lentencroft Robberies by Arthur Morrison. All right, Jack, so this story was originally published in 1895. And as you can tell by the title, the mystery in front of us is a robbery. In this story, more than others, there's references to things that were common back in the day, but not so much today. So I thought we'd start with introducing some things. First, a dog cart. A dog cart is not a cart pulled by dogs, but a cart that carried dogs, specifically hunting dogs. Popular in the 1800s, dog carts were small, two-wheeled carriages pulled by one horse. Behind the driver was a box that dogs could ride in. There were a lot of models and features, including four wheels and seating for four.
1: Now, are you telling me four wheels is a feature?
0: (laughs) It was. The basic model had two wheels, and the luxury version had four. Okay. (laughs) Now, a pony cart is not a cart that carries ponies, but a lightweight two-wheeled carriage with one horse for carrying people. It too came with options that included a larger four-wheel version and a collapsible top. was like the first convertible. For those of you who live in or near Amish communities, sketches of pony carts are very similar to the buggies that we see on our Amish roads today. Next comes window sashes. So window sashes are thick ropes that connect a window to a counterweight system that makes it really easy to open and close them. You can still find window sashes and counterweights in original windows dating back to the first half of the 20th century. If a sash broke, the unbalanced window is really difficult to open because you have to physically correct for that and it would not stay up on its own. Now let's talk about the word brooch. So a brooch is a decorative pin just as it is today. Um, Around here we probably would just call them pins. This particular piece of jewelry has a decorative top but then a straight pin across the back. And it was used for decoration, but it was also used to hold things together like the top of a good coat. And lastly, in the states here, we tend to call the ground floor of the building either the first floor or the ground floor, and then we continue numbering up, second, third, fourth, ex- you know, etc. In Britain, and I'm sure other places, the ground floor is called the ground floor, but then the numbering continues one, two, three. So in this story, when a room is on the first floor, it's not the ground floor, but up one flight of stairs. This is gonna be an important detail or you're gonna be confused about a bedroom that's on the first floor, but that overlooks another room. All right, Jack, you wanna tell us a little bit like, a little bit about our original author, Arthur Morrison? I can't say the word author and Arthur next to each other.
1: Author Arthur Morrison was a British writer born in 1863, uh, right in the middle of our Civil War. He died in 45, just a few months after World War II ended. He grew up in London with his month and siblings. (laughs) Month? He grew up with his mother and siblings. Uh, His father died of tuberculosis when Arthur was seven. Let's parlay about tuberculosis. Between uh, 1850s and 1910, around 4 million people died of TB in England and Wales. Uh, I don't know if I believe that number. We can't really count people who die now. Uh, How would they have done it without computers and stuff? What? Oh, that sentence. (laughs) Whatever. We all got the point. Anywho, TB is a bacterial infection. Uh, It wasn't until 1943 that an antibiotic was developed that could fight it. Before that, people would check themselves into sanatoriums hoping rest and healthy living would cure them. And it didn't, of course. According to an article in the Daily Beast, people in the 19th century lived under constant threat of death from a cold, a rash, or a cough that would lead to death. Well, yep. (laughs) That's a good sentence there, Mom. (laughs) In London in 1850, the death rate was 25 per uh, one.
0: Per 1,000 people. Out of every 1,000 people...
1: three zeros that's four zeros
0: it <laughs> is four zeros so
1: out of okay one one thousand which I is think it's supposed to be one thousand now i'm doubting myself <laughs> well maybe not today but pre-covid what is that a sentence
0: it's a phrase
1: this is confusing hence why we should have rehearsed apparently every year two percent of the population would die and it was normal in 1882 robert Coke.
0: I have no idea how you say that.
1: Well, okay. Any way you
0: say it is right.
1: No, I know. I, I used to know how to say it because um there was a very cruel general uh, in the German army back in 45 uh, who was General something C-O-C-H. And I know because I read about it in this one book we had to read. Hmm. Uh, I think it was.
0: Well, this guy was German. He made his announcement at the University of Berlin.
1: Yeah, see? Whatever, I'm not even going to try it. He made a quiet announcement at the University of Berlin, as was just said. Uh, He determined that TB was caused by bacteria. Uh, TB wasn't an epidemic disease. It was
0: endemic. Oh. It wasn't an epidemic like we're living through right now. It was worse. It was endemic.
1: Which means it didn't explode on a community. Instead, it entered, grew, and didn't leave. Uh, It was the largest killer in the U.S. and Europe in the 19th century. Before, um, I believe it's pronounced Cokes, because the other way that I want to pronounce it. Wait, this is an explicit podcast, right? <laughs> so I can say it, right? You can say it. Whatever. Um, anyway, before his work, TB was thought to be caused by a bad climate or laziness or to be a form of cancer that largely was hereditary. Uh, seeing how the sick people probably coughed in their family, it was hereditary in its own way. Well, no. But anyway, I guess we should talk more about Morrison. He began publishing poems and stories when he was 17 and worked his way into the newspaper business. He wrote Martin Hewitt stories uh, in between writing stories that detailed the violent life that came with living in London's East End. East End. Huh? East End. Um, Morrison's character, Martin Hewitt, was an international opposite to Sherlock <laughs> intentional. Holmes.
0: Intentional. That one I even spelled correctly.
1: International opposite <laughs> works for me. Not an intentional opposite. International. Uh, Hewitt was generally happy and gracious to others. Uh, he allowed that multiple scenarios could explain a factor observation and then work to investigate those. Uh, he was smart and observant, but normal and kind. Here's something that's pretty cool. The Arthur Morrison Society was formed in 2007. Their aim was simply to promote his work and to revive. His memory. His memory, yes. Those words that definitely printed out onto the paper I have. Oh, shoot. Is there more to this that I'm not reading?
0: One more sentence. All right. We simply cannot understand how in so few years someone with such great talent could simply be forgotten. That's what they said.
1: Wow. How interesting.
0: All right, so with our oh-so-smooth entry into this podcast, we're ready to begin. Jack will uh, reset his fingers. Fair warning, I'm still getting over this cold. Don't worry, it's not COVID. I got the test to prove it, but boy, is it hanging on. All right, Jack. Chapter one. Burglary at Lettencroft. At the head of the first flight of a dingy staircase stood a door. The dusty glass upper panel carried in its center a single word, Hewitt, while at its lower right corner in smaller letters, clerk's office appeared. On a morning when the clerks in the ground floor offices had barely hung up their hats, a short, well-dressed young man wearing spectacles hastening to open the dusty door ran into the arms of another man who suddenly issued from it i beg your pardon the first said is this hewitt's detective agency's office yes i believe you'll find it so the other replied he was a stoutish clean-shaven man of middle height with a cheerful round countenance you better speak to the clerk In the little outer office, the visitor was met by a sharp lad with inky fingers who presented him with a pen and a printed slip. The printed slip, having been filled with the visitor's name and present business, was conveyed through an inner door and the lad then reappeared with an invitation to the private office. There, behind a writing table, sat the stoutish man himself who had only just advised an appeal to the clerk. Good morning, Mr. Lloyd. "'Mr. Vernon Lloyd,' he said affably, looking at the slip. you excuse my care to start even with my visitors. "'I must, you know. "'You've come from Sir James Norris, I see.' "'Yes,' the hurried man said. "'I'm a secretary. "'I have only to ask you to go straight to Croft at once, "'if you can, on a very important business. "'Can you go there by the next train? Eleven thirty is the first available from Paddington.' "'Quite possibly,' Hewitt said. "'Do you know anything of the business?' Lloyd maintained his air of urgency. It's a case of robbery in the house, or rather, I fancy, of several robberies. Jewelry has been stolen from rooms occupied by visitors. Sir James has told me to telegraph if you are coming so that he may meet you himself at the station. Well, Hewitt was intrigued and consented, setting the necessary wheels in motion. Sir James was a tall, florid man of 50 or so, I had just lost my place. Sir James was a tall floored man of about 50 or so, known away from home as something of a county historian, and nearer his own parts as a great supporter of the hunt, and a gentleman much troubled with poachers. As soon as he and Hewitt had found one another, the baronet hurried the detective into his dog cart. We've something over seven miles to drive, he said, and I can tell you all about this wretched business as we go. That's why I came for you myself, and alone. It appears, as far as I can guess, to be one of three by the same hand, or by the same gang. Late yesterday afternoon. Pardon, Sir James, Hewitt interrupted, but I think I must ask you to begin at the first robbery and tell me the whole tale in the proper order. It makes things clearer and sets them in the proper shape. Very well, Hugh. 11 months ago or thereabout, I had a rather large party of visitors. Colonel Heath had not been long retired, you know, used to be a political resident in an Indian native state. Mrs. Heath had a rather good stock of jewelry, about the most valuable piece being a bracelet set with a particularly fine pearl. It was a very noticeable bracelet, the gold setting being a mere featherweight piece of native filigree work, almost too fragile to trust on the wrist, and the pearl being, as I have said, of a size and quality not often seen. After lunch the following day, most of the men being off by themselves shooting, I think, my daughter, my sister, who is very often down here, and Mrs. Heath took it in their heads to go walking, fern hunting, and so on. My sister was rather long in dressing, and while they waited, my daughter went into Mrs. Heath's room, where Mrs. Heath turned over all of her treasures to show her, as women do, you know. When my sister was at last ready, they came straight away, leaving the things littering the room rather than staying longer to pack them up. The bracelet with the other things was on the dressing table then. One moment, Hewitt said. Did they lock the door? They did. And as they came away, my daughter suggested turning the key as they had one or two new servants about. Hewitt prevented him from going on with a lift of his hand. And the window? That they left open as I was going to tell you, he said in a slight rebuke. Well, they went on their walk and came back with Lloyd, whom they had met somewhere. He was carrying their ferns for them. It was dusk and almost dinner time. Mrs. Heath went straight to her room and... The bracelet was gone. Was the room disturbed, Hewitt asked. Not a bit, Sir James replied. Everything was precisely where it had been, except the bracelet. The door hadn't been tampered with, but of course the window was open, as I told you. A man from Scotland Yard came down in the morning. The first thing he noticed on the dressing table, within an inch or two of where the bracelet had been, was a match, which had been lit and thrown down. Now nobody about the house had had occasion to use a match in that room that day. And if they had, certainly they wouldn't have thrown it on the cover of a dressing table. So that, presuming the thief to have used that match, the robbery must have been committed when the room was getting dark, immediately before Mrs. Heath returned in fact. Nothing else was moved, Hewitt pressed. Nothing at all, Sir James said. Then the thief must have escaped by the window, although how it's not quite clear. The walking party approached the house with the full view of the window, but saw nothing. Although the robbery must have been actually taking place a moment or two before they turned up. Was there no water pipe within any practical distance of the window, Hewitt asked? No, James said. No water pipe, but a ladder usually kept in the stable yard was found lying along the edge of the lawn. The gardener explained that he had put the ladder there after using it himself in the early afternoon. Hewitt considered and counterpointed. Of course, it might easily have been used again and then put back. That's just what the Scotland Yard Man said, Sir James answered. He was pretty sharp, too, on the gardener, but very soon decided that he knew nothing of it. No stranger had been seen in the neighborhood, nor had passed the lodge gates. Besides, as the detective said, it scarcely seemed the work of a stranger. The stranger could hardly have known to go straight to the room where a lady, only arriving the day before, had left a valuable jewel and away again without being seen. So all the people about the house were suspected in turn. Well, there's little more to be said about that, unfortunately. "'None of it came to anything, and the thing's as great a mystery now as ever. "'I believe the Scotland Yard man had gotten as far as suspecting me "'before he gave it up altogether. "'But give it up he did in the end. "'I think that's about all I know about the first robbery. "'Is that clear?' "'Oh, yes,' said Hewitt. "'I shall probably want to ask a few questions when I have seen the place, "'but that can wait. "'What happened next?' another burglary at Leighton Croft. Four months or thereabout after Mrs. Heath's disaster, in February of this year in fact, Mrs. Armitage, a young widow who had been in school with my daughter, came to stay with us for a week or so. Mrs. Armitage was scarcely in the house half an hour before she arranged a drive in a pony cart with my daughter to look up some old people she knew in the village. So they set off in the afternoon and made such a good round of it that they were late for dinner. Mrs. Armitage had had a small plain gold brooch, not at all valuable, you know, two or three pounds, I suppose, which she used to pin up a cloak or anything of that sort. Before she went out, she stuck this in the pincushion on her dressing table and left a ring, a rather good one, I believe, lying close by. This, S. Hewitt, was not the room that Mrs. Heath had occupied, I take it? no sir james said this was another part of the building well the brooch went taken evidently by somebody in a deuce of a hurry for when mrs armitage got back to her room there was the pincushion with a little tear in it where the brooch had simply been snatched off but the curious thing was that the ring worth a dozen brooches was left there where it had been put mrs armitage didn't remember whether or not she had locked the door although she found it locked when she returned But my niece, who was in the house the whole time, went and tried it once because she remembered a gas fitter was at work on the landing nearby and found it safely locked. The gas fitter, whom we didn't know at the time, but who seems to be a quite honest fellow, was ready to swear that nobody but my niece had been to the door while he was inside of it, which was almost all the time. As to the window, the sash line was broken that very morning and Mrs. Armitage had propped the window up about eight or ten inches with a brush. She then returned, and that brush and satch were all exactly as she left them. Now, I scarcely need to tell you what an awkward job it must have been for anybody to get noiselessly in and out of that unsupported window, and how unlikely he would have been to replace him with the brush exactly as he found it. "'Just so,' Hewitt said. "'Then as to getting in at the window, would it have been easy?' Well, sir, yes, Sir James said, perhaps it would. It was the first floor window, and it overlooks the roof of a skylight of the billiard room. It would be easy enough to get at that window from the billiard room roof. But, he added, that couldn't have been the way. Somebody or other was in the billiard room the whole time, and nobody could have gotten over the roof, which is nearly all skylight, without being seen and heard. I was there myself for an hour or two, taking a little practice." It was such a small matter that Mrs. Armitage wouldn't hear of my calling the police or anything of that sort. I thought, I felt pretty certain that there must have been a dishonest servant somewhere. A servant might take a plain brooch, you know, who would be afraid of the value of a real ring, the loss of which would have made the matter a big deal. Well, yes, perhaps so, Hewitt noted, in the case of an experienced thief, who also would be likely to snatch up whatever she took in a hurry. But I'm doubtful What made you connect these two robberies together?" Well, scarcely more than a month ago, Sir James said. I met Mrs. Armitage and we talked about other things of Mrs. Heath's bracelet. I mentioned that the match was found on the table and that's when she said, how strange. Why, my thief left the match on the dressing table when he took my poor little brooch. Hewitt nodded, a spent match of course. Yes, James said. She noticed it lying close by the pincushion." but threw it away without mentioning it the circumstances. Still, it seemed rather curious to me that a match should be lit and dropped, in each case, on the dressing cover an inch from where the article was taken. I mentioned it to Lloyd when I got back, and he agreed that it seemed significant. Scarcely, Hewitt said, shaking his head. Scarcely, so far, to be called significant, although worth following up. Everyone uses matches in the dark, you know. Well, at any rate, Sir James said, the coincidence appealed to me so far that it struck me that it could be worthwhile to describe the brooch to the police in order that it could be traced if it was pawned. They tried that, of course, with the bracelet without any result, but I fancy the shot to be more worth the making and might possibly lead us to track the more serious robbery. Well, they found it. A woman had pawned it in London at a shop in Chelsea. But that was some time before, and the prom broker had clean forgotten about the woman's appearance. The name and address she gave were false, of course, so that was the end of that business. A few questions, Hewitt said. Had any of the servants left you in the time between the brooch being lost and the date of the pawn ticket? No, Sir James said. Were all of your servants at home on the day the brooch was pawned? Oh, yes. I made that inquiry myself. Very good, Hewitt said. What's next? Chapter 3, Another Burglary? Yesterday, and this is what made me send for you, Sir James said, my late wife's sister came here last Tuesday, and we gave her the room from which Mrs. Heath had lost her bracelet. She had with her a very old-fashioned brooch, containing a miniature of her father, and set in front with three very fine brilliants and a few smaller stones. Here we are, though, at Croft, I'll tell you the rest indoors. Hewitt laid his hand on the baronet's arm. Don't pull up, Sir James. Drive a little farther. I should like to have a general idea of the whole case before we go in. Very good. Sir James Norris straightened the horse's head again and went on. Late yesterday afternoon, as my sister-in-law was changing her dress, she left her room for a moment to speak to my daughter in her room, almost adjoining. She was gone no more than three minutes, or five at most, But upon her return, the brooch, which had been left on the table, was gone. Now the window was fast shut and had not been tampered with. Of course the door was open, but so was my daughters, and anybody walking near must have been able to hear. But the strangest circumstance, and one that almost makes me wonder whether I've been awake today or not, was that there lay an unused match on the very spot, as nearly as possible to where the brooch had been, and it was broad daylight. Hewitt rubbed his nose and looked thoughtfully before him. Hmm, curious, certainly. Anything else? Nothing more than you shall see for yourself, he said. I have had the room locked and watched until you could examine it. My sister-in-law had heard of your name and suggested that we should call you in. So, of course, I did exactly as she wanted. That she should have lost the brooch of all things in my house is most unfortunate. You see, there was some small differences about things between my late wife and her sister when their mother died and left. It was almost worse when the Heath bracelet business, and altogether, I'm not pleased with things, I can assure you. See what a position it is for me, he said. Here are three ladies, in the space of one year, robbed robbed in a mysterious fashion in my house, and I can't find the thief. It's horrible. People will be afraid to come near the place. What can I do? I can't do nothing. Hewitt listened and nodded sympathetically. Ah, well, we'll see. Perhaps we had better turn back now. By the by, were you thinking of having any alterations or additions made to your house? No? Why do you ask? I think you might at least consider the question of painting and decorating, Sir James, or, say, putting up another coach house or something, because I should like to be, to the servants, The architect, or the builder, if you please. Come around to take a look. You haven't told any of them about this business. Not a word, Sir James said. Nobody knows about this but my relatives and Lloyd, my secretary, who you met. I took every precaution myself at once. As to your little disguise, be the architect by all means. Do as you please. If you can only find this thief and put an end to this horrible state of affairs, you'll be doing me the greatest service I've ever asked for.
1: 20 bucks says it's the secretary.
0: And as to your fee, I'll gladly make it whatever it is, and 300 pounds in addition. Martin Hewitt bowed. You are very generous, Sir James, and you may be sure that I will do what I can. As a professional man, of course, a good fee always stimulates my interest. Although this case of yours certainly seems interesting enough by itself. Most extraordinary. What do you think? Here are three ladies, all in my house. He said, robbed of a piece of jewelry, all in the most difficult, one would say impossible circumstances for a thief, and yet there is no clue. Hewitt smiled. Well we won't say that just yet, Sir James. We must wait and see. And we must guard against any undue predisposition to consider the robberies in a lump. Mr. Hewitt nodded in the direction of a man who was clipping a box border. That's a dog here we are at the lodge gate again is that your gardener? I'm sorry it's a bush. Is that your gardener? the man who left the ladder on the lawn on the first occasion you spoke? yes, Sir James said will you ask him anything? no, not right now at any rate. Remember, the building alterations. I think if there is no objection, I will look at first the room that the lady Mrs. Hewitt looked up inquiringly my sister-in-law? Mrs. Kazanov Oh, yes, you shall come to her room at once. Thank you, and I think Mrs. Kazanov had better be there.
1: Okay, 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 but hear me out.
0: Okay, I'm listening.
1: All the ways in th- into the rooms don't work, right? Like the ladder, oh, it couldn't have been moved, and the, the window couldn't have been opened. What if the person could just walk in the room, like the secretary? That's my guess. It's
0: very logical. <laughs> Chapter 4 inside Latoncroft The room occupied by Sir James's sister-in-law, Mrs. Kazanov, was on the second floor, the top floor of that part of the building. Some slight confusion of small articles of dress were observable in parts of the room. "This, I take it," inquired Hewitt, "is exactly as it was at the time the brooch was missed?" "Precisely," Mrs. Kavanaugh answered. "Kazanov answered, "I have used another room and put myself to some inconvenience to avoid the disturbance." Hewitt stood before the dressing table. Then this is the unused match, he observed. Exactly where it was found? Yes, she said. And where was the brooch? I should say almost on the very same spot, she said. Certainly no more than a few inches away. Hewitt examined the match. It's burned very little, he remarked. It would appear to have gone out at once. Could you hear it struck? I heard nothing whatever, she said. Absolutely nothing. If you will step into Miss Norris's room for a moment, Hugh had suggested, we will try an experiment. Tell me if you hear matches struck and how many. Where is the match stand? The match stand proved to be empty, but matches were found in Miss Norris's room, and the test was made. Each striking could be heard distinctly, even with one of the the doors pushed shut. Both your own door and Misses Norris Miss Norris were open. I understand the window was shut and fastened as it is now, and nothing but the brooch was disturbed, Hewitt said. Yes, that is so, Mrs. Kazanov confirmed. Thank you, Mrs. Kazanov. I don't think I need to trouble you any further at the present. I think, Sir James, Hewitt added, turning to the baronet who is standing by the door, I think we will see the other room and take a walk outside the house, if you please. I suppose, by the by, that there is no getting at the matches left behind on the first or second occasions. "'No,' Sir James answered. "'Certainly not here. Yard Yardman may have kept it.'" The room that Mrs. Armitage had occupied presented no no peculiar features. A few feet below the window, the roof of the billiard room was visible, consisting largely of a skylight. Before leaving the room, however, Hewitt wished to know the names of any persons who were known to have been around the house on the occasion of all three robberies. "'Just carry your mind back, Sir James,' he said. "'Begin with yourself, for instance. "'Where were you at the three times?' "'When Mrs. Heath lost her bracelet,' he said, "'I was in Tagley Wood all afternoon. "'When Mrs. Armitage was robbed, "'I believed I was somewhere about the place "'most of the time that she was out. "'Yesterday I was down at the farm,' Sir James' face broadened. "'I don't know whether you call those suspicious movements,' "'he added and laughed. "'Not at all,' Hewitt said. I only asked so that you, remembering your own movements, you might be better recall those of the rest of the household. Was anybody, anybody mind you, in the house on all three occasions? Was any visitor here each time, or even on the first and last occasion only? No, Sir James said, after taking a little time to think, and my own sister, perhaps you will be pleased to know, was only there just at the time of the first robbery. Just so, Hewitt said, "'and your daughter was clearly absent from the spot each time. "'Indeed, she was in the company of the party robbed. "'Your niece now?' "'Why hang it all, Hewitt,' he said. "'I can't talk of my niece as a suspect criminal. "'The poor girl's under my protection, and I really can't allow—' "'Hewitt raised his hand and shook his head deprecatingly. "'My dear sir, haven't I said that I don't suspect a soul? "'Do let me know how the people were distributed as nearly as possible.' "'Let me see it. "'It was your niece, I think, who found Mrs. Armitage's door was locked, "'this door, in fact, on the day she lost her brooch. "'Yes, it was,' Sir James confirmed. "'Just so. "'At the time when Mrs. Armitage herself had forgotten whether she'd locked it or not, "'and yesterday, was she out then?' "'No,' he said, "'I think not. "'She goes out very little. "'Her health is usually bad. "'She was indoors, too, at the time of the Heath robbery.' But come now, I don't like this. It's ridiculous to suppose that she knows anything of it. I don't suppose, as I have said. I am only asking for information, Hewitt said. This is all your resident family, I take it, and you know nothing of anybody else's movements, except perhaps Mr. Lloyd's, the secretary? Lloyd, well, you know yourself that he was out with the ladies when the first robbery took place. "'As to the others, I don't remember. "'Yesterday he was probably in his room writing. "'I think that acquits him, eh?' "'Sir James looked quizzically into the broad face "'of the affable detective, who smiled and replied, "'Oh, of course nobody can be in two places at once, "'else what would become of alibi as an institution? "'But as I have said, I'm only setting my facts in order. "'Now you see we get down to the servants. "'Unless some stranger is a party unwanted. "'Shall we go outside now?' Chapter 5, Outside and Back Inside Again Lentencroft had been added to bit by bit till it zigzagged about its sight as St. Jo- as Sir James Norris expressed it like a game of dominoes. Hewitt scrutinized its external features carefully as they strolled around and stopped some little bit before the windows of the two bedrooms he had seen from the inside. Presently they approached the stables and the coach house where a groom was watching the wheels of the pony cart. Do you mind my smoking, Hewitt asked Sir James. Perhaps you'll take a cigar yourself. I will ask your man for a light. Sir James felt for his own matchbox, but Hewitt had gone, and was lighting his cigar from a match from a box handed to him by the groom. A small little terrier was trotting around by the coach house, and Hewitt stopped to rub its head, something Sherlock Holmes would never have done. There he made some observation about the dog, which enlisted the groom's interest. And he was soon absorbed in a chat with the man, Sir James. Waiting a little way off, tapped the stones rather impatiently with his foot, and presently moved away. For a full fifteen minutes, Hewitt had chatted with the groom. When at last he came away and overlooked and overtook Sir James, he was about to re-enter the house. "I beg your pardon, Sir James," Hewitt had said, "for leaving you in that unceremonious fashion. But a dog, Sir James, a good dog, will draw me anywhere." There is one other thing I should like to know. "'There are two windows directly below that of the room occupied yesterday "'by Mrs. Kaz- Kazanov, one on each floor. "'What rooms do they light? "'That on the ground floor is the morning room. "'The other is Mr. Lloyd's, my secretary's, "'a sort of study or sitting room. "'Now you will see at once, Sir James,' Hewitt pursued, "'you will see at once that, if a letter had been used in Mrs. Heath's case, "'anybody looking from either of those rooms "'would have seen it. "'I think I should like to look out of those windows myself. "'It will at least give me an idea "'of what was in view and what was not, "'if anybody had been there.' "'Sir James Norris led the way to the morning room. "'As they reached the door, a young lady, "'carrying a book and walking very languidly, came out. Hewitt stopped aside to let her pass, "'and afterwards said interrogatively, "'Miss Norris, your daughter, Sir James?' "'No, no, no, my niece. Do you want to ask her anything?' "'Dora, my dear,' Sir James added, following her into the corridor. "'This is Mr. Hewitt, who is investigating these wretched robberies for me. "'I think he would like to hear if you remember anything happening at any of the three times.' "'The lady bowed slightly and scented a plaintive drawl. "'I, Uncle? Really? I don't remember anything. Nothing at all.' "'You found Mrs. Armitage's door lock, I believe,' asked Hewitt when you tried it on the afternoon that she lost her brooch. Oh yes, I, I believe it was locked. Yes, it was. Had the key been left in it? The key? Oh no, 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 I think not, no. Do you remember anything out of the common happening, anything whatever, no matter how trivial, on the day Mrs. Heath lost her bracelet? No, really, I don't. I, I can't remember at all. Nor yesterday? "'No, nothing. I don't remember anything.' "'Thank you,' Hewitt said hastily. "'Now the morning room, Sir James.' In the morning room, Hewitt stayed but a few seconds, doing little more than casually glance out the windows. In the room above, he took a little longer time. It was a comfortable room, but rather effeminate indication about its contents. Little pieces of draped silk work hung about the furniture, and Japanese silk fans decorated the mantelpiece. Near the window was a cage containing a gray parrot, and a writing table was decorated with two vases of flowers. Lloyd makes himself pretty comfortable, eh? Sir James observed, but it isn't like anybody would be here when he was out. No, replied humid Hewitt. Hewitt meditatively. No, I suppose not. He stared thoughtfully out of the window and then, still in th- deep thought, rattled at the wires of the cage with a quill toothpick and played a moment with the parrot. Then he looked up at the window again, and he said, "'That is Mr. Lloyd, isn't it, coming back in a fly?' "'Yes, I think so,' Sir James said. "'Is there anything else you'd like to see in here?" "'No, thank you,' Hewitt replied. "'I don't think there is.' They went down to the smoking room, and Sir James went away to speak to his secretary. When he returned, Hewitt said quietly, "'I think, Sir James, I think I shall be able to give you the thief presently.' "'What?' Sir James said. "'I began to believe you were hopelessly stumped. "'Well, yes, I have a rather good clue, "'although I can't tell you much about it just yet, "'but it's so good a clue that I should like to know now "'whether you were determined to prosecute "'when you have the criminal.' "'Why, bless me, of course,' Sir James replied with surprise. "'It doesn't rest with me, you know. "'The property belongs to my friends, "'and even if they were disposed to let things slide, "'I shouldn't allow it. "'I couldn't, after they've been robbed in my house.' Of course, of course. Then I can, Hewitt said. I should like to send a message to Twifford by somebody perfectly trustworthy, not a servant. Could anybody go? Well, Sir James said, there's Lloyd, although he's only just back from his journey. But if it's important, he'll go. It is important, Hewitt said. The fact is we must have a policeman or two here with us this evening, and I'd like Mr. Lloyd to fetch them without telling anybody else. Sir James rang and, in response to his message, Mr. Lloyd appeared. While Sir James gave his secretary secretary his instructions, Hewitt strolled to the door of the smoking room and intercepted the latter as he came out. "'I'm sorry to give you this trouble, Mr. Lloyd,' he said, "'but I must stay here myself for a little, and somebody who, who can be trusted must go. "'Will you just bring back a police constable with you? Or rather, two. Two would be better. "'That is all that is wanted. You won't let the servants know, will you? Of course, there will be a female searcher at the Twyford police station. Ah, of course, of course. You needn't bring her, you know. That sort of thing is done at the station. And, chatting this confidently, Hewitt saw Lloyd off. All right, this is the part of the story where we pause to give you a chance to catch a thief. Jack, are you still staying with uh, Mr. Lloyd, the secretary?
1: Yeah, every part of it just seems to be pointing at him at this point. In my personal opinion, they said they wanted somebody trustworthy to go, so they sent the only guy I don't find trustworthy. I think that's pretty on purpose. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he set that up. He's going to prove that that wasn't trustworthy in some way.
0: I will say that um, Arthur Morrison here doesn't give us a lot of suspects, does he? Like he we, we have not We met the totally brainless niece, Dora, who can't yeah. seem to say anything. But no, no, I don't think so.
1: Who else is there? Him?
0: There's Sir James. There's Dora. There's his daughter, who we haven't met, who apparently was out with each outing.
1: That would be pretty Agatha Christie of him to do. Yeah. If we, he made it the character who we've never actually met. Yeah.
0: We haven't... They haven't even mentioned, like, any sort of butler or the only... the only, um non-family member they even mentioned was the gardener
1: yep and he didn't need to matter that much
0: yeah this gas fitter which i think is a person who was installing gas lights when those were uh, becoming a thing and then the groom who was washing the pony cart and playing with the dog
1: yeah i mean i don't got a lot of guesses so i guess i'm gonna have to go with mr lloyd
0: okay Well, even though I said we do things live, no fakes, no retakes, we are going to have a little bit of cut there because Jack accidentally played something that was copyrighted. So I'm going to start over by asking you all to support the people who have supported me. And you know, support comes in many shapes and sizes. Good advice, mutual promotion, partner in crime. All Due Respect is one of those supporters. It's uh, published by uh, Christopher Radigan, who is my editor on my books, and he has brought you low-life literature since 2010. Um, he publishes down-and-dirty novellas, novels, and short story collections from the best writers in crime fiction. So discover just how low you, how low you can go at alldorespectbooks.com. Alright, Jack, let's get on with the big reveal. Chapter six Who Done It When Hewitt returned to the smoking room, Sir James said suddenly, Why, bless my soul, mister Hewitt, we haven't fed you. I'm awfully sorry. We came in rather late for lunch, you know, and this business has bothered me, so I've clean forgot anything else. There's no dinner till seven, so you'd better come along with me now. I'm really sorry. Thank you, Sir James, Hewitt said. I won't take much. A few biscuits, perhaps, which are cookies, or something of that sort. And by the by, if you don't mind, I think I should like to take it alone. The fact is I want to go over this case by myself. Can you put me in a room? Any room you like, Sir James said. Where will you go? The dining room's rather large, but there's my study. That's pretty snug. Or perhaps I can go into... Mr. Lloyd's room, for a half hour or so. I don't think he'll mind, Hewitt said, and it's pretty comfortable. Certainly, Sir James said, if you like. I'll tell them to send you whatever we've got. Thank you very much, Hewitt said. Perhaps they'll also send me a, a lump of sugar and a walnut. It's its just a little fat of mine. A what? A lump of sugar and a walnut? Sir James stopped for a moment, his hand on a bell rope. Certainly, if you like it, certainly he added as he stared after his detective with curious tastes as he left the room. When the vehicle, bringing back the secretary and the policemen, drew up the drive, Martin Hewitt left the room on the first floor and proceeded downstairs. On the landing, he met Sir James Norris and Mrs. Kazanov, who stared with astonishment on perceiving that the detective carried in his hand the parrot cage. I think our business is about to be brought to a head now, Hewitt remarked on the stairs. Here are the police officers from Twyford. The men were standing in the hall with Mr. Lloyd, who, on catching sight of the cage in Hewitt's hand, paled suddenly. This is the person who will be charged, I think, Hewitt pursued, addressing the officers and indicating Lloyd with his fingers. Good job, Jack. What? Lloyd? gasped Sir James. Not, not Lloyd. This is nonsense. "'He doesn't seem to think it's nonsense himself, does he?' "'Hewitt placidly observed. "'Lloyd had sank on a chair and, gray of face, "'was staring blindly at the man he had run against "'at the office door that morning. "'His lips moved in spasms, but there was no sound. "'The wilted flower fell from his buttonhole to the floor, "'but he did not move. "'This is his accomplice,' Hewitt went on, "'placing the parrot and cage on the hall table, "'though I doubt whether there'll be any use in charging him. "'Eh, Polly?' polly put his head to the side and chuckled hello polly it was quiet and gurgled come along sir james norris was hopelessly bewildered lloyd lloyd he said and then he said again lloyd and that this was his little messenger his useful mercury he would explain tapping the cage complacently in fact he was the actual lifter hold him up the last remark referred to the wretched Lloyd, who had fallen forward with something between a sob and a loud sigh. The policeman took him by the arms and propped him into a chair. Chapter seven, Hewitt's Figuring. I began with the match, Hewitt said, just as the Scotland Yard men did, but I had the advantage of taking a line through three cases. To begin with, it was plain that the match, having been left there in, dead, in daylight in Mrs. Kazanov's rooms, could not have been used to light. Could not have been used for light. Therefore, it had been used for some other purpose. Habitual thieves, you know, often have curious superstitions, and some will never take anything without leaving something behind—a pebble, a piece of clo- coal, or something of that like. It seemed at first extremely likely that this was a case of that kind. The match had clearly been brought in, because when I asked for matches there were none in the stand, not even an empty match box, and the room had not been disturbed. Also the match had not been struck there, noting that having been heard, although of course a mistake in this manner was just as possible. This match then, it was fair to assume, had been lit somewhere else and blown out immediately. I marked at the time that it was very little burnt plainly it could not have been treated thus for nothing and the only possible object would have been to have it prevent it. the only possible object would have been to prevent it lighting accidentally she said all the words in the order in which they appeared following on this it became obvious that the match was used not as a match but merely as a convenient splinter of wood On examining the match very closely, I observed, as you can see for yourself, certain rather sharp indentations in the wood, which no, he did not tell us about before. They were very small, you see, and scarcely visible except upon narrow inspection, but they were there, and their positions are regular. The match, in fact, would seem to have been gripped by something fairly sharp, holding it at two points above and below, an instrument, as it may once strike you, not unlike the beak of a bird. Now here is an idea. What living creature but a bird could possibly have entered Mrs. Heath's window without a ladder and could have gotten to Mrs. Armitage's window without lifting the sash higher? Plainly nothing. Further, it is significant that only one article was stolen at a time, although there were others about. A human being could have carried any reasonable number, but a bird could only take one. But why should a bird carry a match in its beak? Certainly it must have been trained to do that for a purpose, and a little consideration made that purpose pretty clear. A noisy, chattering bird would have probably betrayed itself at once, therefore it must be trained to keep both quiet while going for, and coming away from, its plunder. I conjectured that it must be a raven, so that, when we arrived near the coach house, I seized the opportunity of a little chat with your groom on the subject of dogs and pets in general, and ascertained that there was no tame raven in the place. I also, incidentally, by getting a light from the coach house box of matches, ascertained that the match was of the soft generally soft variety generally used about an establishment. But I further found that Mr. Lloyd had a parrot, which was the most intelligent pet, and had been trained into comparative quietness for a parrot. Also, I learned that more than once, the groom had met Mr. Lloyd carrying his parrot under his coat, it having, as its owner explained, learned the trick of opening its cage door and escaping. I got to Lloyd's room as soon as possible. My chief object in going there was achieved when I played with the parrot, and it included it taking a bite of a quill toothpick. Now you had left me in the smoking room when I compared the quill and the match very carefully, and I found that the marks corresponded exactly. After this, I felt very little doubt indeed. The fact of Lloyd having met the ladies walking before dark of the first robbery proved nothing, because, since it was clear that the match had not been used to procure light, the robbery might easily have taken place in daylight, and not, must, as not, must, okay, let's try that sentence again. The robbery might as easily have taken place in daylight as not, must have taken place there, in fact, if my conjectures were right. That they were right, I felt no doubt. There could be no other explanation. When Mrs. Heath left her window open and her door shut, anybody climbing up the open slash of Lloyd's higher window could have put the bird upon the windowsill. The match placed in the bird's beak for the purpose I have indicated the match first struck, of course, in case by accident it should ignite it rubbing against something and startle the bird, this match, of course, would be dropped just where the object was removed, was taken up. As you know, in every case, the match was found almost upon the spot where the missing article had been left. Scarcely, a likely triple coincidence, had been had the match been used by a human thief. This would have been done as soon as the ladies had left and then would have been given plenty of time for Lloyd to hurry out and meet them before dark. The match was an article well chosen for its purpose and as being not altogether unlikely to find a thing on a dressing table and if noticed, likely to lead to the wrong conclusion adopted by the official detective. Now in Mrs. Armitage's case Taking the inferior brooch and leaving the more valuable ring pointed clearly to either the operator being a fool or unable to distinguish values. The door was locked, and the gas fitter, so to speak, on guard, and the window was only eight or ten inches open with the proper with the propped-up brush. A human thief entering the window would have disturbed this arrangement and would scarcely risk discovery by attempting to replace it especially a thief in so great a hurry as to snatch up a brooch without unfastening the pin. A bird could pass through the opening as it was, and would have had to tear the pin cushion to pull the brooch away. (coughs) Now in yesterday's case, we had an alteration of conditions. The window was shut and fastened, but the door was open, but only left open for a few minutes, during which time no sound was heard either coming or going. Was it not possible, then, that the thief was already in the room, in hiding, while Mrs. Kazanov was there and seized its first opportunity on her temporary absence? The room is full of draperies, hangings, and whatnot, allowing plenty of concealment for a bird, and a bird could leave the place noisily, noiselessly, and quickly. That the whole scheme was a strange matter not. Robberies presenting such unaccountable features must not have been affected by the strange means of one sort or another. There was no improbability. Consider how many hundreds of examples of infinitely higher degrees of bird training are exhibited in the London streets every week for coppers. So that, on the whole, I felt pretty sure of my ground. But before taking any definite steps, I resolved to see if Polly could be persuaded to exhibit his accomplishments for an indulgent stranger. For that purpose, I contrived to send Lloyd away and have a quiet hour alone with his bird. A piece of sugar, as everyone knows, is a good bribe for a parrot. But a walnut split in half is better, especially if the bird had gotten used to it. So a split walnut is better and you furnished me with both. Polly was shy at first, but I generally get along very well with pets, and a little perseverance soon led to a complete private performance for my benefit. Polly would take the match, mute his wax, jump on the table, pick up the brightest thing he could see, and in a great hurry, leave the match behind and scuttle around the room, but at first wouldn't have given his plunder up to me. It was enough. I also took the liberty, as you know, of a general look-around and discovered a little collection of bergamot rings and trinkets that you have just seen, used in Polly's education, no doubt. When we sent Lloyd away, it struck me that he might as well be usefully employed as not, so I sent him to fetch the police, deluding him just a little. I fear by talking about servants and about a female searcher there will be no trouble about evidence he'll confess of that i'm sure i know that sort of man but i doubt if you'll get miss cavanaugh's brooch back you see he has been to london today and by this time the swag is probably broken up sir james listened to hewitt's explanation with many expressions of assent and some of surprise when it was over he smoked a few whiffs and then said but mrs Armitage's brooch was pawned and by a woman Exactly, Hewitt said, I suspect our friend Lloyd was rather disgusted as a small luck, probably gave the brooch to some female connection in London, and she realized on it. Such persons don't always trouble to give correct addresses. The two smoked in silence for a few minutes, and then Hewitt continued, I don't expect our friend has had an easy job altogether with that bird. His successes at most have only been three, and I suspect he had a great many number of failures, and not a few anxious moments that we know nothing of. I should judge, as much merely from what the groom told me as of frequently meeting Lloyd with his parrot, but the plan was not a bad one, not at all. Even if the bird had been caught in the act, it would only have been that mischievous parrot, you see, and his master would have been only looking for him. And there you have it, Jack. So you are mostly right.
1: I didn't even know he had a bird.
0: You didn't hear about the bird?
1: I wasn't paying enough attention.
0: Would the bird have, have changed your mind?
1: No, I really did just think that he was able to open all the doors and get in and out.
0: So let's talk about the aftermath. So does it work? I mean, it does mostly work, right? The, the bird explained everything. The idea that it picked up the one shiniest object. I came close like Jack to figuring out this one. I suspected a bird after the brooch was ripped off the pincushion. I did not suspect Lloyd of being behind it until Hewitt played with the para cage. The one thing that I thought was weak was the explanation of the last theft, the one where the window was closed and the door was open. I mean, what, the bird was hiding in the room, hiding in the folds of the curtain, really? If the door had been open long enough to let a bird fly in and out, it would have worked. As written, I just felt like it was contrived. Um, hey Jack, did you like Martin Hewitt as a character? Did you like his counterpoint to the to the fastidious Sherlock Holmes?
1: Sure. I don't know. I thought it was cool and all. I thought it was rather... Um, I don't know. I thought it was kind of simple. And then, like, they added a bird in it.
0: <laughs> well, what was the first one we did with uh, Dupin? Uh, the, the take we did on uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue, where the killer was a gorilla?
1: Yeah. It was like... It's normal until you add a freaking animal in it.
0: <laughs> I need to write a mystery that does that. It's normal until you add an animal. in. just pick your favorite animal. Let's use let's use an otter or a narwhal. <laughs> all right. So I liked Hewitt. I thought he was an entertaining character. I hadn't known him before this story. I've read a few other of the short stories, and I like them all. Uh, consistently, the logic gets a ninety to ninety-five percent. They're interesting, and and they're all good reads. Uh, They're all short stories, and you can read them in less than an hour. I've read four so far, and all but one I would put in the... They were all solvable, but one. So that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Show support for our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, giving a five-star review, become a member of our Body Bag Brigade, and financially support with with just a one-time donation for the season pay what you can information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast T, er, mysteries to die for is written by me tg wolf with contribution from jack wolf the lenten croft robberies was written by author morrison and edited by tg wolf music and production are by jack wolf and episode art is by tg wolf So thank you so much for joining us, and we will be back in two weeks with Episode 8. Jack, the floor is yours.